pray for a minute together. Lord, um, would, you, would you speak today? Would you prevent us from, from simply looking at the things we think we see? And would you help us to see the things as they are? Lord, would you show us who Jesus is? And would you, Lord, reveal through your scriptures and through my words just how beautiful he truly is and what it means to belong to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I have decided that the Bible is a really dangerous book. And the reason I know that is because it has a way of revealing things, and it has a way of making people uncomfortable, as a way of sometimes even causing people to run. Now, when I say it's a dangerous book, I don't mean it's evil. I don't mean that it contains seditious thoughts or destructive and wicked concepts. What I mean is that it has a way of showing things as they are and helping us to see things as they are, and in so doing, it tends to disrupt the status quo of our lives. Let me say that more personally. We use a lot of I statements at Holy Cross. I've noticed that the Bible tends to disrupt the status quo of my life, and I suspect if you've ever read it, it has a tendency to disrupt the status quo of your life. It disrupts the status quo of our lives as a community seeking to live for Christ. It's a dangerous book in that way. Because we have this tendency to deceive ourselves when it comes to God and when it comes to what God asks of us who claim to be His, who self-identify as followers of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. Because it's not merely about the words in a book, it's about the God who inspired those words and the God who takes those words to speak truth into our lives, to unveil our lives, to show us our lives, and to show us the beauty and the extravagance of his life, this one whose love is truly extravagant. I want to look with you this morning at James chapter 1. If you'll take out your scripture sheet, I've got to warn you, this is a dangerous passage of scripture because it's a disruptor in all the right kind of ways. James says this in verse 22 of chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Now, as James James talks about the Word, he's talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Bible text. James is saying that we are called to be doers of the Word, not merely hearers. He says the Word is really disruptive because in many ways it's like a mirror. It shows us what's really going on in our hearts and our lives. It has a way of exposing us to the truths that we often, I often, don't want to see 
about the way I'm living, about who God is, about who I am, about whom God has called me to be in his son, Jesus Christ. It's disruptive in that way. James is telling us that we must be doers of the word, not merely hearers. I remember some years ago being on a hike, and I, there was a man who had come on the hike. He had just come to Holy Cross like a week before. His life was a mess. He was separated from his wife. He was estranged because of that from his little boy who was just a few, I think maybe a year or two old at the time. And he, he said to me, you know, everything's falling apart. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be moral. I grew up going to church. I've got an important job. I get paid a lot of money, but my marriage is a mess. I'm not parenting my son. My heart is broken, and I just feel like I want to die. I said, well, why don't you come with us? What do you have to lose? And he came on that hike a few days after his first time in a service, And somewhere toward the end of the hike, we were walking along. It was the very last morning. And he came up alongside of me and he said, you know, I've I've seen something in these people that's different. I've seen something that I don't understand, but I, I want. They talk about Jesus, but it seems like something more than just words in a page or words on a page. And and we began to talk and his life began to unfold and he began to just confess to me. And I said, stop. Stop. You've been an isolated person. You've been a person going at your own your entire life, as so many of us do. So what you really desperately need is for the company of men, for the church to surround you, because I'm not enough. You need other people. You need to see God in them. And so we called these men back who were ahead of us on the trail, and we gathered around this man, and and I just said, our friend has something he wants to share with you, and he began to pour out his life. And it was like a waterfall of pain and sorrow and sin and brokenness. I guarantee that man had never been that honest in his entire life. And something amazing happened. I mean, it was ugly. There was some evil stuff, bad stuff. But instead of experiencing shame, instead of experiencing condemnation, instead of experiencing rejection, to a T, every last man moved in toward him and laid their hands upon him and began to pray over him, not weak prayers, but prayers that cried out for the mercy of God, prayers that sought the goodness of God, and I, I, I don't know how to explain it other than that as that began to happen, that man was delivered from some dark force that had been over his life. And that group of men spontaneously began to sing a song over him. It was a song we'd been singing over the weekend, so they had practiced it. And i got to tell you, it's one of the hardest songs other than maybe that first one we sang today. It's one of the hardest songs to sing where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is joy, there is hope, there is peace. But as they sang over him, they weren't just singing songs side by side to an unknown God. They were singing a declaration of freedom. It was a prayer of power. It was absolutely something God filled. And that man was so set free, he was born anew. Now, that's not the point of my story. It's a good story. We got up and we kept walking. About 10 or 15 minutes later, 
another guy came running back down the trail toward me. And he had tears running down his face. And I braced myself because I wasn't really sure what was coming my way. And he stopped far too close to my face for my comfort. And he said, for 40 years, I've been sitting in the church hearing about the word of God. Today we did it. And that man's life has never been the same. Neither has the one we prayed for. God's power and presence became real and alive, not only for that man who was broken, but also for those who reached out their hands in love, who prayed boldly, not perfectly, who prayed with abandon, who prayed desperately, who prayed from a heart of love for a broken brother who is no better than them, no worse than them, the company of fellow sinners at the foot of a cross of a God who loves us, an extravagant love poured out. It took the word we throw around so easily, grace, God's unmerited favor, and it made it real, it exploded in our midst. James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. So deceiving yourselves. Jesus Christ came to set people free. Jesus Christ still sets people free. As he stood up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, that gospel lesson we heard, and he unrolled the scroll in front of all the people who were watching. It was his custom, incidentally, to go to the Sabbath every week. Not once every nine weeks. Every week. And he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me. He has anointed me. To do what? To wag a finger in shame and condemnation over sinners? <laughs> to proclaim good news to the poor? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind? To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? And he rolled up the scroll and he sat down in the teacher's position and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one who's come to show you what it means to know the extravagant love of God. I am the one who has come to release you, to give freedom to you, to set you free, to give you sight, to take away oppression, to proclaim God's favor over you. And the only thing he left out in that verse from Isaiah 61 was the verse about judgment. He didn't read that part. You can go look it up. He left that out. And why? Because he would take that judgment upon himself. For what purpose? That God's life and love would be released to broken people in need of a Savior. This is what he did. This is what he continues to do. But now he does it through those of us who having received that love are willing to give it to others. 
having heard that word of freedom, having heard that word of love, having heard that word of salvation, having heard that word of mercy, having heard that word of forgiveness, are now to be doers of that very word that has come into our lives. And it comes into each of our lives in different ways. It meets you where you live. It meets you where you are. It meets you in your cares. It meets you in your concerns, in your fears, in your anxieties, in your brokenness, in your sins, in your addictions. Whatever it is you bring, that word meets you that you might be set free, that you might be made new, and then that you might reach your hands forth in love to others who need that too. That's what James is talking about. That's what James is pointing us to when we hear this word, that we would be doers of this word. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. worthless. James talking about what it is to have heard a word of mercy, to have received the heart of God, to have had the Savior set us free, this one who has been anointed to proclaim good news, he says it has an effect upon our lives. This relationship that we're invited to enter into with the living Savior does something to us. And it starts on the inside, and that inside then begins to manifest itself on the outside. And so he points to one of the most obvious places in every one of our lives for us to check our hearts before God. He says, take a look at your words. You say you're religious. Maybe you go to church. Maybe you throw a few dollars in the plate. He says, but what are your words like? Because the words are an indicator of the condition of our hearts. Sometimes it shows that our hearts are desperately wicked above all things. Other times it shows us that, gosh, we we have a real penchant for going back to the way we used to be. Out of the overflow of your heart, so your mouth speaks. Do you know how many words you speak every day? There are a bunch. Some of you more than others. <laughs> the, average, the average person, so not, you know, not the advanced student, the average person, 16,000 words a day. That is the equivalent of a 64-page book. In one week, you speak the equivalent of a 450-page book. In a month, you speak 480,000 words, the equivalent of 1,920 pages. In one year, you speak 5,760,000 words, which is roughly equivalent to four volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Some of you remember what those are. Now, you stretch that over 70 years, and the average person speaks 403 million words, which would be equivalent to a full set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, 44 volumes, nine times over. A lot of words. So, what if only 1% of your words are evil? How many is that? We have a problem apart from the Lord, don't we? Lest anyone think I'm doing okay on my own, apart from God, just pay attention to your words. That whole long book, how'd you like that big book, that whole volume of Encyclopedia Britannica's read on the internet with your name attached to it, by the way? Ah, mercy, God, have mercy, God, have mercy, God. 
Now, this is not a word of condemnation. It's a word to indicate we have to watch our words. We have to be aware of the fact that in being doers of the word, it means we will have to be those who ask for God's mercy over our own words. Because I got to tell you, I can stand up here and speak the word of God, and before the day is over, find words coming out of my mouth that I I would be ashamed for you to hear. Just ashamed for you to hear. James says, put a bridle on your tongue. I mean, he's like, he's using horse language here. It's like a a stallion that has yet to be broken, and it needs a bridle on it, and it needs some reins on that sucker. But here's the thing, you can't do it in your own strength, can you? Because even if you try violently, strongly, making all the best resolutions apart from a work of the Spirit of God within you, it won't happen. But yours is to purpose your heart in that way. Yours is to say, Lord, it's true. According to the way my words speak, my heart is so often so far away from you. I need you to change me. Would you please change me so that I might actually do what you've asked to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer? Have mercy upon me, God. Change me, O God. James, unfortunately, goes on. Because he doesn't just leave us there. (laughs) Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He takes it out of the merely personal and he, he says, look, this is what it looks like. You're to go have compassion upon those who have no power. And orphans and widows in that culture were those who were completely powerless. They had no rights. They had no real hope generally in the world. They were left to their own. And orphans and widows are representative of all those who don't have power, who have been treated unfairly, who have not had opportunity, who have been pushed down by others. There are a whole lot of orphans and widows, literally orphans, literally widows, but there are people who are voiceless. There are people who have pain because of what the systems of our culture do to them. See, he's beginning to move us into places of action, places that people are probably different from us. Like migrants, maybe poor people, maybe AIDS victims, maybe the unborn, people who don't have power, children in the foster care system, literally orphans who have no parents to care for them. It's the same thing Micah said. You can see it woven through the Scriptures. What is it that God requires of you? Does He require that you bring sacrifices? Does He require that you bring... No, He says... What does the Lord require? Well, he says to do justice. That's the same thing that James is talking about. Caring for those who need care. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do these things. Not as a way to earn from God, but because you have received from God. Walking humbly with your God. 
Keeping yourself unstained from the world, he says. Now that doesn't mean don't go into the world, because how could you not go into the world if you're caring for orphans and widows and the poor and the broken and the lost and people who aren't like you, aren't like me? The Pharisees were afraid to go into the world because of a fear of being stained by it, that it would somehow corrupt them, that somehow they would get the cooties from the world. When James is talking about staying unstained from the world, he's not saying don't go into the world, don't engage with those people, don't don't be involved in their lives. Don't be afraid to go to places where sin is alive, but remember that you operate in a different way as you walk humbly with your God. You're not to become exactly the same as the world because the world will seek to stain you. It'll seek to get its stuff on you. I remember when I was little. I don't remember. I'm maybe four or five. No, I was younger than that. I was probably three. Um, And it was in the days before, you know, it was real dangerous to be in public places. And uh, we were at a parade, my my single mother and I, we were at this parade, and she was just letting me run around, because in those days, you could do that. And there was a, a big mud puddle, and it wasn't just, I mean, it was like a mud lake. It was giant. And, and I saw all these other kids that were jumping into it. And, I mean, <laughs> I became stained by the world, following others into trouble. Now, when I came back, she was not happy with me. But she wasn't going to take me home right away either which means I got to feel what it was like to be stained by the world in that sense because the mud started to dry and it started to cake and I started to get itchy and the clothes were no longer fitting well and I was uncomfortable and I didn't like it at all. That's the last time I ever jumped as a child into a mud puddle. We have to be careful not to follow others into sin, but we can't be afraid of going where sinful people are. Because guess what? We're no different on our own apart from Christ. We are absolutely no different. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, religion, to be real and genuine, must not only be something people talk about, but it must be something people live about. That's why we talk about being a community living for Christ in the power of the Spirit. Martin Luther King Jr. went on to say, Jesus recognized that there is always the danger of having a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Jesus was quite certain that the tree of religion becomes dry and even dead if it fails to produce the fruit of action. Our faith must look like something. Our faith must do something as it follows the Lord. Again, catch that. Walk humbly with your God as you follow the Lord in the midst of your day, in the midst of the world, in the midst of the needs, into the places that He directs you. This is a Spirit-led endeavor that we might be His power in other people's lives, His good news in other people's lives, His kindness in other people's lives. Let me close with this. remember hearing a man by the name of Alan Emery uh, speak about a, an account that occurred in his life when he was just a boy. So back in the day when people generally like rode trains and they enjoyed that, right? Like long distance train travel. And it still happens some, but it's less common nowadays. 
His family had their own um, a sleeping car, car, and then there was the dining car, and he was in the dining car one morning on this trip, and he overheard his father concerned about the porter. Now, this is back in a, a different day and age. The porter was an African-American man, and the man was limping along. His father was concerned about the man. Well, this, this uh, Alan, who was a boy at the time, later telling this story as, a, as an older man, he said, I noticed a little while later the porter coming out of my parents' sleeping car, and he was crying. And he went and he sat on a bench, and so Alan came over and sat down next to him, and, and he said, what's the matter? Is it your toe? Does your toe hurt? And the man said, no, it's because of your daddy. And the little boy was, what did my daddy do? He said, your daddy invited me into their car, and he said, even though I'm not a doctor, I think I can help your foot. And he took off my shoe, and he took off my sock, and he lanced my toe, and he drained the infection, and he bandaged my toe after having bathed it. And all the while he was doing that, he asked me if I knew about the love of Jesus. This porter's response was, my mother does, but to me he's always been just words on a page. But as Alan Emery's father bathed that wound and bandaged that wound, the porter said, but now I have experienced the love for myself. And I know that I am valuable to Jesus. He began to cry again. And the little boy said, what's the matter now? He said, little boy, kindness can make a man cry. Jesus' love becomes real in other people's lives when you and I, who proclaim to know him, are willing to go out of our comfort, out of our convenience, out of our regular routines, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, not to those who deserve it, or even those we always know, but simply because we've received something from God and we're willing to give it away. Would we be that kind of church? Would I be that kind of man? And I pray for you, my friends, that you would be those kind of brothers and sisters in Christ too. Let's pray. Lord, your word is dangerous. Not because it condemns us, but because it convicts and it shows and it leads and it guides and it it mirrors who we are. Lord, anywhere we're tempted toward condemnation this morning, we rebuke that in the name of Jesus and we come to the cross of extravagant love and simply say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Anywhere I've fallen short of true religion, a relationship that moves out into action, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, also, in those places where we're tempted to feel like we're doing a good job. Yep, I've got this one licked. May we walk humbly with our God and be delivered from all delusions. Father, would you let your power break out in our lives?
in my life, in our lives, in this church's life, in our community's lives, not just here in this building. Lord, wherever you lead us, in our classrooms, among our fellow students, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and Lord, to those orphans and widows who need your love, that you would be glorified and that the world would know you are real and you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.